Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, thanks for tuning into the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and I am with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week, we bring an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. We talk with visual artists, photographers, musicians, craftspeople, and also people who help um, uh, promote the arts in their community. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about writing and the writing life with our guest, Lee Durkee. Lee, welcome. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, Lee, you're a writer based in Oxford, and uh, today's a special day. Where you, the day we're recording this is the publication date for your newest book. Absolutely, yeah. 20 years after my first book, my second book is finally coming out, and today is the big day. Although I've been on a book tour of art for two days already, um, it's exciting to me. I can't pretend otherwise. Yeah. yeah. So it's called The Last Taxi Driver, and it's a novel by Lee, and... Um, uh, it's getting really good. Uh, you know, of course, looking at the the advance copy that they sent uh, sent the Arts Commission, it's a who's who of of Oxford writers blurbing on the back. But I thought even more uh, uh, notable is uh, the writer George Saunders giving a blurb. That's awesome. He's really way up there in terms of the literary world. George is at the top, isn't he? Um, this will tell you a little bit about how the literary world works, and it works via cronyism. Sure. Uh, George and I. Um, Went to Syracuse together. Oh, wow. You know, 100 okay. years ago. We were the only two students to enter that program who weren't from the Ivy League. Um, so we were a little cowled together and stuck close. And uh, we've been friends ever since. Um, How about that? So, yeah. And in terms of getting this book picked up, I got a <clears throat> part of it put up in the, uh, picked up by the literary magazine The Sun. And so I got up my nerve to send George an excerpt of something I'd written. First time I'd done that in 20 years, I think. And um, <clears throat> he immediately set me up with an agent. And um, everything fell together after that. So um, completely, um, you know, I owe everything to George in so many ways in, in that regard, but to other people too, obviously. Yeah. So so tell us, before we, uh, let, let's just tell me a little bit about, just give your kind of elevator speech about the book, and then we're, we're going to get back into it deep in uh, later in the segments. Okay. I don't know if I have an elevator speech yet since it's so hot off the press, or at least off the press. It is the kind of a story of a day and a half shift from hell from a cab driver who drives 70-hour weeks. Um, and it's the shift where everything goes wrong. Uh, the book itself deals with a lot of themes such as the gig economy and being an independent contractor and what a wonderful experience that is for everybody. And um, it's funny. It's dire and funny, hopefully. Um, the material is very dark. Every review I've ever read of anything I've written is always a dark but something else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Here is a like dark but hopefully funny. Um, and... So far, so good. We just found out that the uh, opening chapter is going to be print, going to be run in Harper's Magazine oh, wow. in the April edition. Awesome. So that's exciting and kind of surreal. Um, I was in Harper's in 1995 <laughs> to give you an idea of my literary career and the span of time where nothing happened. So um, it, it's the reviews are good, but you know, 
I'm keeping the bar low of expectations. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive back, go back a little bit, and just talk about kind of your origin story as a writer. You know, so you were, you grew up in Hattiesburg, mm-hmm. right? And yes. uh, was that um, did writing come to did reading or writing come to you as a as a child or growing up, or was it something that came later in your life? Um, reading came to me quickly. And I think I decided I wanted to be a writer about the age of 16. There's no bookstore in Hattiesburg at the time. I used to haunt the uh, mall bookstore, the classic section. And um, that's really just the arbitrary act of picking a book by a cover or whatever in that section kind of was my reading experience. Um, But I, I was lucky in that I always knew really what I wanted to do in life. And so many people, you know, or try to find what they want to do. You're very lucky. It if you know, even if it's a writer, which is not an easy profession, as I have proven. So, so did it, did you start writing while you were still in high school, or was it something that you you tried out later on, or how did I that get started? I started writing regularly um, when I ran away at around 19 to Key West, and um, that was the first time I would write every day in a, you know, wherever I could find a place to write. And and since then, I've never quit. I arrived in Key West thinking it was going to be an Ernest Hemingway type of experience. He was my hero. And I sat on a pier right as I arrived into town. The sunset was going down. I was watching the sunset and thinking, you know, I'm in Key West, Hemingway. And an older man sat down next to me and struck up a conversation. And after a few minutes, he said, you're not gay, are you? And, and I said, um, no. He said, I was just wondering, because this is a gay peer. And that, you know, concept of a gay peer, when you're raised in Mississippi in a small, you know, it just washed over me. And I was, you know, the whole experience of being in Key West was a very, you know, mind-expanding experience, but it was also intimidating and 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 otherworldly in a sense. But yeah, Key West was where I started writing every day. And you mentioned going to Syracuse. Was that, you, you, did you do like a writing program at Syracuse or how did? I did. Well, first of all, I went to Arkansas as an undergraduate, which okay. was incredibly important for me because that was right after my Key West experience and I was a bit messed up. And um, and so I um staggered into Arkansas undergraduate program, and they have an MFA creative writing program in the graduate school, and they adopted me. And I think they saved my life. There was really Miller did. Williams there at the Miller time? Williams okay. was there. Lucinda, Jim Whitehead. W- yeah, Lucinda yeah. Williams' father, who was a well-known poet and, and taught there for many years, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Though I didn't deal with Miller much. He was okay. on the poetry side. All right. Um, but William Harrison, Jim Whitehead, who's a Mississippian, uh, they were there, and they all took care of me. And eventually, from there, I went to Syracuse. Oh, okay. So, but they kind of gave you that that grounding, I guess, that kind of kind of launched from, or just kind of introduced you to that, like what the writing life was, or how to take it seriously, or that, or what did, what did you gain from Arkansas I as a writer? I think I gained. Uh, had it hammered home in my head what you can and cannot do as a writer according to certain opinions. And these were very strong-willed men, and they had absolute rules about how you should start a short story and how you shouldn't, et cetera, et cetera. And they would ridicule you. It was the most macho program in the world. I remember um, William Harrison pretending to, you know, to clean himself as if it post-bathroom with one of my stories once. I saw him throw other stories 
out windows. Um, they could be pretty brutal there, but it made an impression too. You remembered those rules and you can break them later on in life, but it's great to have that foundation. And um, that's what I got out of Arkansas. And it was a tremendous advantage. I think there's only so much you can learn about writing in an academic environment. You know, there's only so many rules or whatever. But, um, and then you move on. I don't really think I learned nearly as much at Syracuse as I, lived, as I learned at uh, undergraduate in Arkansas. And I was studying with Tobias Wolf and, you wow. know, Hayden Carruth and, you know, Ray Carver was hanging around there at the time. So it was a literary all-star camp. But I'd already had the foundation from Arkansas. So that was an advantage. Yeah. Uh, you're listening to the Arts Hour, and our guest today is Lee Durkee. He's got a new novel out called The Last Taxi Driver. Um, so in looking at some of the interviews um, about kind of in, 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 in anticipation, i got to slow myself down, of this book, you, you kind of mentioned that, you know, about being in the academy and, 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 um, and, and, and you know, not, you know, kind of trying to find a uh, real-life experience outside the academy and, and your kind of maybe irritation with maybe some of the, a lot of the contemporary work that is kind of really based within the, the these writing schools and that. That's definitely part of the novel. And, you know, Lou, the narrator, is bitter, and he reflects me, I'm sure, in many ways. Um and he's particularly bitter over the um, phenomenon of MFA noir writers. You know, noir was created by people who weren't in academic circles, and now it's it has been you know, taken over by MFA AWP programs, uh, Masters of Fine Arts, Associated Writing Programs. And that's gone from being a cot cottage industry to running literature. The AWP has, what, 15,000 people heading to a conference this week? Um, and through complete lack of malice, they have built a wall around literature. They don't do it on purpose, but it, the whole purpose of the AWP is to create favoritism for the people inside it, give them advantages. They meet, they meet editors, they meet agents, they blurb each other, they call each other geniuses, they review each other, they give each other fellowships, they give each other publications. And if you're outside that world, you are pounding on a wall, just screaming, trying to get somebody's attention. It's getting to the point where it's not impossible, but it's close, close to impossible to get stuff published if you're outside of the AWP world. And that's a problem. Writing programs are great, and they can be life-saving, as they were for me as an undergraduate, but there's just too many of them. It's absurd. Uh, every state has four or five of them now. You know, the whole country needs five of them. So, um, and also because of this, you know, writers are no longer aligned with poor people the way they used to be because these people aren't poor. Um, they're pretty wealthy and all the history of writing, writers have been poor and they've been advocates for the poor. You know, a very important aspect of writing is to remind rich people how much it sucks to be poor. And I worry that we've gotten away from that to some extent uh, with the whole MFA AWP phenomenon. Um, even the MAC grants that y'all very generously give out, Mississippi Art Commission grants, quite frequently go to um, MFA teachers who are actually from out of state. They move here for a year or two, they'll get a MAC grant. And um, that's paid for with you know Mississippi taxpayer money, I assume. I got one this year and I'm grateful for it, very grateful. 
But there's no reason those should be going to MFA teachers because MFA teachers already have money. MFA teachers were not educated in Mississippi. Um, you know, they moved here recently. Yeah. And it goes on, you know, so it's, um, there's this phenomenon going on in every state. The same thing is happening. They're the people getting the grants and fellowships. And quite frequently, they're also the people deciding who gets those grants and fellowships. And other people other writers who are outside that little circle of light are, are neglected. Yeah. So I think those things should go to people who were educated in Mississippi. Well, um, so, you know, uh, the, the current book, The Last Taxi Driver, is kind of based on your experience. Parts, you know, some of the, the, the real lifeness of comes from your time as a taxi driver, but you've also kind of been throughout kind of the what service economy, as it were. So t tell a little, maybe just tell a little bit about, you know, kind of bouncing off this idea about, you know, riders in the academy. What what are some of your experiences that kind of uh, like taxi driving and that that have influenced, kind of come into your work? Well, I am a child of restaurants. I was raised by Pasquale's Pizza in Hattiesburg, uh, and then Jeremiah's in Hattiesburg, and then Bernie's in Hattiesburg, and I continued to work as a bartender my entire life until my back spasms and deafness prevented that. And that was only a couple of years ago. So everything, my humor comes out of restaurants, you know, which is a very dark brand of humor yeah, because absolutely. when you're in the restaurant business, you have to smile and smile and smile. And when you have a moment back in the kitchen, you know, the venom just comes out. It's unfiltered. It's not English department humor by any means. And so that's been a huge influence on me. Um, and also as a bartender, you're in a great position to eavesdrop. And I don't think writers think about that enough. If getting a job that allows you to eavesdrop every day is not a bad idea. And it always seemed logical to me. Um, as to the cab driving, you know, I really was working, you know, 12, 13 hour shifts and, you know, inside 70 hour weeks. And I would come back. Um, and that's the only way you can get your own car in that business. Um, if you wanted to be able to keep the company car at your house, you have to work like 60, 70 hour weeks. Oh my gosh. And I knew drivers who drove more than that. And, and it was just the craziest job I'd ever had. And so much happened every day that I would just stagger home at night and I wouldn't have time to write it down. I'd be too tired, et cetera. And I was just really afraid I was going to forget it all because it was just fascinating. The people I ran into, I... I didn't know a lot of these people existed. You know, they live on the fringe of societies. The people who call cabs don't have credit cards. They don't have checking accounts. You know, they live in projects. They live down dirt roads and in trailer parks and things like that. And um, so it was life-changing in a lot of ways to me. And it was also being part of the gig economy, you know, which leaves a lot to be desired. But that's what infuses this book is, you know, just what it was like to be an independent contractor in a small college town. And, you know, they work in the same system as Uber and Lyft, independent contractors. It's not like a badge system you have in bigger tech, in bigger cities for taxis. It's the same kind of system where you, um, at the end of the week, your, your boss supplies the car, the insurance, you supply the gas. And at the end of the week, you split the drop with your boss, which is essentially how sharecropping worked. You know, sharecropping, the farm, the animals, the seeds, the plows were all supplied, and you split the drop, you split at harvest. So there's a lot, a lot similar between those two worlds, and yet they're both more generous than the world of Uber, et cetera, because Uber supplies nothing 
and I've driven for them for years too, after I finally could afford my own car, Uber supplies nothing and they take over 50% of the drop. All they do is supply the app. You already have the insurance. They supply extra insurance to protect themselves. So what they do is criminal. And um, it's basically the illusion of income for people who are not sophisticated enough to realize that the depreciation of their vehicle is how they're paying themselves. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Lee Durkee, and we're talking about his new book, The Last Taxi Driver. So you, you mentioned in the, in the last segment that, you know, the book, the main character is a, a, a cab driver in a small town. I think a lot of us, you know, who don't take taxis, you know, our, our experience is in movies with the, you know, the big, you know, where you go in Mac, you know, the kind of New York City cabbie and that, but the, the small town cab driver is, that's a, it's kind of all, almost like a totally different job and a different world than, than the, the classic big city cab driver. Well stated. Yes, exactly. It's a different job entirely. Um, and it's also a different, I started off driving at night, but I kept getting in arguments with the frat boys. And so I was relegated to the day shift. And if that hadn't happened, the book would not have come about because the day shift has a structure where you're constantly dealing with regular customers and you're constantly taking people to work. So if you're getting somebody late on a pickup, they could get fired. And you're aware of that. And it puts a lot of stress on your job. Um, as a day shift cabbie, you know, you're taking care of old people. I've, there's nothing I haven't done to help old people. I've found their lost pets. I've taken out their garbage. I've helped them use the bathroom. People will call cabbies for the strangest things. And um, and it really is like a utility. It's important. And you, I felt as a day shift cabbie that I was really contributing to my community. I take pride in my work. And I liked the job, even though it was an impossible job but it has no relationship with the one you see on TV. It's a different world entirely, just right. like you said. Yeah. But it's almost like uh, Lou, the character, it's almost like he kind of has, in certain things, he's got almost like a social worker kind of capacity. Like he has the elderly, an elderly woman who no longer drives, who has to go to the doctor different places regularly. And he's developed this very kind of intense relationship with her in terms of you know, buckling her in and, and, and help, you know, getting her mail and all these things. And, and the other thing that I didn't know about that, and I think you've talked about in interviews is, is the, the picking up like a hospital patients mm. and taking them home. And that was another really 
um, kind of sad scene in the book that kind of echoes back throughout it for the driver. Yeah. Well, we we were the ambulance for poor people, and you know the elderly use cab, cabs during the day more than anybody. I think. And plus, I had the only sedan that they could get in. Everybody else had an SUV, so I was in charge of a lot of elderly people. As to the hospitals, um, that was a strange world as well. We had a contract with the local hospital where when somebody was more or less dismissed or kicked out of the hospital, I always assumed because I couldn't pay their bills, um, we took them to wherever they lived, usually in North Mississippi, usually in the Delta. Um, and eventually, I assume taxpayers footed those bills. Uh, we actually charged mileage both ways, which is illegal. Um, but we did that at the time, and we kind of earned it. It was a tough job. When somebody got put into my car for that, the first thing I would have to gauge is whether I was physically strong enough to lift this person out of the car and get them to where they were going, whether it's upstairs, things like that, because they were in bad shape, and they were very old people quite often. And you just felt like they were on death's door, like you thought they should not be released from a hospital. But there you are, and you sort of take them on a deathbed run, you feel like. And uh, and that was a big part of my job during the day shift, and it was really sobering in so many ways. And, and, some, and in some sense, it was also very, um, you know, it made me feel good about the job as well, even though, you know, I dropped guys off. I dropped a 80-year-old man off in a trailer in the middle of a field without any electricity, and you just leave them there, right? And when I got to the edge of the field, I called the hospital and I said, who's taking care of this guy? You know, and the hospital says, oh, we'll check into it. And But that's it for you and him. You'll never see him again, right? And you don't know what becomes of him you know, or whether you should not have left him in that situation, which seems pretty dire. So that was the hospital runs. And, and um and I'm sure that's happening in every, you know, in every city in America, something similar to that. Yeah. And it, and, it, and there's so many different types of character, you know, from the town that uh, the main character in the book um, experiences. It almost, but, and they kind of haunt him and, and it, like, they, it's almost like it builds up over time in, in, in terms of all these different experiences. And they kind of are all like, uh, He's thinking back about them and, and, and that kind of stuff. Did Do a lot of these, I mean, obviously, were, were there others that kind of stuck in your memory of your own experiences besides the these hospital ones, like characters and types of people? Yes. I mean, when you're driving 70-hour shifts, your regulars are your only friends because you don't have time for any other friends. And the people you're dealing with, they, they mean something to you. You see them every day almost. And in terms of, you know, is feeling the guilt of all the – your job as a cab driver is to help people out and then quickly abandon them. And um, and there's so often, you know, you charge people you shouldn't have charged. And that's what I felt guilt over the most. Uh, I, picked a, I picked a woman once up once from a drug bust and the cops had decided to let her go. She had a baby with her, things like that. And everybody else, I assume, was, you know, handcuffed inside the house. And get out of here. And the cops don't like her, but they're not going to arrest her. And I charged her for a trip back. And I felt guilty for that. You know, it just didn't even occur to me what a jerk I was being until later that day. Because I'm dealing with fatigue and all sorts of stress with the job. And 
a friend of mine, I told him that story, and he said, like, uh, when I told her, she tried to pay me with change. And my friend was just like, well, obviously you didn't take it. And I was like, oh, actually I did. And then the guilt hits, you know, and you think, God, I should have been a better human being in this situation. Obviously, you know, I could have gone to the store. I could have bought her diapers. She had nothing. She had a baby. Baby smelled horrible. You know, they had no food. I left her on a front porch and drove away. And I, God knows what happened to her, you know. I could have gone to the store. I could have bought her food. Yeah. You know, I could have bought her baby food. And I didn't do any of those things. So the guilt of that, you know, in the book, I tried to make that in terms of ghost. My ghosts are ghosts of contrition. You know, mm. like if you read somebody like Jasmine Ward, she has very literal ghosts. You right. know, the ghosts have lives outside of the physical characters. Mm -hmm. They're real um, minor kind of ghost of guilt, I think. You're listening to the Arts Hour. Our guest today is Lee Durkee, and is, we're talking about his new book, The Last, the Last Taxi Driver. Um, the other thing, you know, you, you um, name a lot of pop culture stuff in here, too. You know, uh, I guess not pop culture. I'm saying in a broad way, maybe more uh, culture. So writers, uh, music, culture kind of enters into this. And one of the interesting things about Lou, the, uh, the driver, the main character, is, you know, he kind of – and maybe this is kind of him trying to – he's always trying to – trying to f work on ways to fix himself or what he's reading about Buddhism. He's trying to incorporate that and he's still getting road rage. Um, but he kind of goes between, it seems like classical music and then hip hop. Like he, he, he maybe talk a little bit about that. He seems like he's, he, he, the, the extremes of his, his musical tastes are interesting. Yeah. I was recently asked to make a playlist for the novel and it was impossible to do because there's no transition between such different genres. Yeah. You know, I just, finally gave up. Um, but the music is a type of therapy. You know, if you listen to classical music, Beethoven, that's obviously very soothing, and you need soothing in that situation. Um, Lou listens to hip-hop, specifically David Banner, when he's just road rage, because David Banner is more angry than he is, and it helps him to calm down. Uh, my whole relationship with hip-hop is I was turned on to hip-hop, you know, by my son about 20 years ago, and Musically, it changed my life. I, you know, just had that enthusiasm for music that I had had when I was a teenager again, and I had lost that. So to me, it was invaluable, and I'm really grateful for hip-hop, and I like how hip-hop is um, politically outspoken, you know, when other art forms aren't necessarily that way. Hip-hop is political, and I'm, you know, I, my book is kind of political, I hope, and I think art should be political. So hip-hop, it just, you know, reinvigorated me as an artist and, and not always in healthy ways because you deal with a lot of obscenity, a lot of rage, and finding an avenue where you could use that. I mean, this novel was originally conceived as a kind of 90s hip-hop album that would be filled with samplers, you know, excerpts from this and that and that. But when you get into the practical world of publishing, editors are telling you that's going to cost us $5,000 to use that lyric something like that. So that whole structure got vetoed gradually, edit by edit. But that was how it was conceived. I wanted to write something that was very influenced by hip-hop. Are you in particular, you you mentioned David Banner, who's a Mississippi artist. Are you in particular interested in in regional hip-hop like the Mississippi or Southern, or is it just kind of what whatever kind of garners your interest in terms of their, their style, their lyrics? Hmm. Um, in terms of Mississippi, I listened to David Banner's album, Mississippi, compulsively. I'm pretty OCD. 
and my music relationship with music is OCD. Um, I listened to Big Crit, um, and Crit was here, but that's the only album I listened to by him, and that's the only album I listened to. David Banner is his Mississippi album, okay. um, and I'm like that way with a lot of hip hop artists. I, a lot of times, they just have one album that I'm um, obsessed with, and um, so. But no, my taste in hip hop, you know, my love for Outkast, a Southern group, not Mississippi group, is uh, mm -hmm. without bounds. But um, my hip hop is all over the place. And, and but I'm not, I'm not an expert on it. You know, I'm always amazed when I meet musical experts and the depth of their knowledge about. You know, I have friends who know so much more about music than I do. You know, I'm a dilettante, I think, that way. But it's just a, more of an emotional and, and, and kind of lyrical reaction you're having to the, to the music, I guess, maybe. Or. Yes. Um, it's so much about lyrics, but also the way the lyrics are delivered and the beats, too. Everything. It's just, I don't know what would have become of me if I had not been turned on to hip-hop by my son. And I still remember that whole process. My son was listening to Tupac, and he was also listening to a lot of bad hip-hop. And so I was listening to his CDs one night, and I, and I happened to hit um, a single by Tupac called Hit Him Up, which is a diss track, and it's obscene in every respect, and it's also incredible. It's an amazing track. But I didn't understand hip-hop back then. I was listening to it, and I didn't understand this is tug-in-cheek. I didn't understand this is stand-up comedy. I didn't understand that it wasn't supposed to be taken literally. All I was thinking was my 11-year-old son is listening to this obscenity and this, you know, love of violence. And I was really distraught, and I knew nothing about hip-hop at that time. So I started researching it, and um, I bought my son Kanye West's first album, uh, College Dropout. And we both listened to that for maybe six months, almost nonstop. And uh, it just went from there. And um, and now I'm getting away from it, finally, after you know almost a decade. Mm. I'm, I'm back to listening to, mostly I listen to the stuff my sister used to listen to in high school. Uh, you know, just the old rock stuff. Yeah. You know, a lot of it's kind of soft, bubblegummy. It's strange to go from that to that. But you know. Bose Allison comes up too, though, and I think that's a good, a good. It kind of connects in a lot of ways to to your work in terms of his his focus on lyricism and 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 the, the regular person and and his own story. That is very much like a work a day musician who just he worked till the very end and never really got. He was never really, you know, the star, but he, he just kept plugging that whole time. So. Yeah, and he has a great sense of humor, too. Yeah, absolutely, right, yes. Yeah. The humor is, is yeah. undeniable, yeah. I'm a huge Mose Allison fan. Um, and he's such an underrated artist as a jazz singer. I, there's very few people I listen prefer to him. I think he is a genius and on every level as a songwriter, you know, and I'm a big piano fan, so I get to listen to Mose Allison all the time, and I wish he had been more famous, you know, yeah. but that's the way it goes, and ultimately, he, the, the songs he left, well, you know, not many songwriters in America have, have compiled that long of list of brilliant songs, so. And influence uh, on others, oh, absolutely. Oh, my gosh, yeah. yeah, yeah very yeah. deep. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app.
I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Lee Durkee. He's a writer from Oxford, and his new book, The Last Taxi Driver, is out now. Um, so this book, as of our recording today, it's it's the publishing day, as we mentioned earlier, um, and you've been out on the road a little bit with it so far. What's What's been the reactions in terms – it looks like it's gotten some good reviews and it's getting, getting some real good feedback. It does seem to be – things seem to be falling into place with it right now. But I had that happen 20 years ago, and not much came of it. So I'm kind of keeping everything in perspective that way. Uh, but we've got a few things that we're not allowed to talk about quite yet, but some good news to come on the book, too. So, um, yeah, the reviews have been a little over the top. The Washington Examiner, it was, it was just one of the kindest reviews I've ever read the other day. And, you know, you're almost wondering if you're in a dream. Um, so, so far, so good. But low expectations is the name of the game, is is my rule. So I'm just enjoying it. I'm, it. To me, it's a miracle I have a book out at all after all these years. So it's all gravy. Yeah, I'm not going to get invested in that. And you and and there was a interview with you in the Clarion Ledger this past weekend and talked about there has been some books. Um, you had some books in between that kind of didn't work out. So you've been writing steadily, I guess, or or you know attempting stuff over the last decade or so yeah i've fashioned my entire life around writing until i got that job driving a cab full-time in which i had to work during the day until then everything in my life was writing i love writing it's not work to me it's compulsion and i get up and i'm so lucky right now for the first time i get up and i can just write I don't have to do a job, and that's not going to last long, but it might last another six months, and I'm enjoying it. But, yeah, I wrote constantly during the time. I bet I wrote five, six novels, some memoirs, uh, and but I didn't have an agent at that point, and it would just, you would reach a point where you finish one book and you would just start writing another. You, you know, was, agents wouldn't even reject me at that point. You know, you would finish a manuscript, send it to an agent, and you won't even get a rejection notice. And I'm bitter about that, and I think justifiably so. Just no response yeah, at all. You have to reject writers. And if, if you're an agent or an editor and you're not rejecting writers, you need to step back and ask yourself a few questions. And um, so the act of writing kept going on all during that time. I've never experienced writer's block in my life. And uh, and right now I'm trying to decide whether I want to market these novels that I already have in my computer or whether I just want to go forward and write mm-hmm. new stuff, and I haven't made a decision on that yet. So, before I left the last taxi driver, I wanted to get on the uh, the air freshener component of this. It's like a uh, it's it's uh, it's on the cover of the book, the old pine tree, and uh, uh, Lou, the driver, he has he has a, like a whole menagerie of air fresheners because he's constantly being assaulted by different smells from his, his riders. But they, they also become kind of like uh, totems and, and conversation starters, and they, they kind of really get things, in some ways they're like a, um, 
a way for you to interact or that or the drider to interact with you. And I want to talk about if you could talk a little bit about their their role in the book. I think you stated it really well. There, there's conversation starters, especially in the book, more so than in real life. But I had them in real life, and um, you know, I had a UFO one, I had a Bigfoot one, I had a Shakespeare mint one, um, which was the Chandos portrait of Shakespeare, and I still have those, even though they don't have any odor to them anymore. I just keep them in the car, and um, it was, it was something like a reoccurring joke throughout the book, and when Tin House press picked Tin House Books, you know, accepted to publish this book, they actually put the, my air fresheners on the back cover. The one on the front, the tree, wasn't really part of the book, but that was the only recognizable air freshener right. that would be recognized as such. Iconic. So that one got on the front of the book. But um, Tin House has uh, just been amazing throughout all of this. I was so happy we signed with them. They're uh, uh, independent press, smaller, but... The personal attention you get and the laid-back atmosphere—you uh, don't feel lost in, you know, inside some giant corporation. You're dealing with real human beings, and it's been one of the great experiences of my life dealing with Tin Press, Tin House, and they also put out uh, complimentary air fresheners to give out with the books. Oh, awesome! And so, but they smell horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess a bit of joke. We go back and forth because they, you know, they. they What's their scent? It's something to do with lemon, like lemon belch, maybe, you know, something like lemon corpse. I don't know what you would, if you open one out in your car, you might have to get a new car. They're that bad. So you can't I even ha- just do the little tidy tear on the side. I, I it's have too one much. Right in there. If you want to open oh, okay. it, okay. you will not be in this office long if right. you do, I promise. Well, uh, another thing that's happening. So you've got uh, this book out now. You've got another book, a memoir coming out next year. Um, and. It's it's got a very inter- you know unique story, and I was hoping whatever you want to talk about it, it's 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 not coming out till next year. But uh, there was a little bit of a discussion about it in some interviews I saw with you, and I was curious. I was hoping you could talk about it a little bit. Well, earlier we kind of touched on OCD qualities, and I think that's permeates the memoir that's coming out that is about my uh, obsession with a. Uh, Elizabethan portraits, and specifically with portraits of Shakespeare, the 400-year-old ones, that nobody has ever found a 400-year-old portrait of Shakespeare that was painted from life. A lot of people think they found one, and for years it will be celebrated, and then it will get debunked. So there's this whole procession of world-famous portraits of Shakespeare that end up being debunked. And so Shakespeare has evolved over the years, and gotten handsomer and handsomer and handsomer. So I decided I was going to go in search of portraits that were of unidentified people or misidentified people who might have been Shakespeare because he was mass-produced as an artist in his life, as you know, people painted him. And, um, and I concentrated on the ugly ones because <laughs> so, I figured, you know, those are the ones people don't want to be Shakespeare. But, they, you know, if you look at the Droshout engraving from the first folio, it's the guy with the bug eyes and the weird watermelon head, and he's not a handsome guy. So I, I got obsessed with this search, and I got obsessed with getting uh, curators at, to infrared and x-ray their, their 400-year-old portraits of Shakespeare. Because if you're looking at a 400-year-old Elizabethan portrait, you're looking at overpaint. The real portrait is underneath all the overpaint, if it exists at all. And also underneath the paint, there could be, um, if, you have, if you treat it with infrared light, um, you can see the um, 
carbon underdrawings that were used to create the portrait originally. So it's like seeing the first draft of the portrait. There was a lot of censorship in Shakespeare's time. There was a lot of strange religion, which we don't, you know, it was very occult time. Um, and um, I was curious what might be censored from these portraits, et cetera, et cetera. But mostly the portrait, the uh, book, the memoir is just about obsession and it's a narrative. It's funny. It's not an academic book at all. And it's coming out next year from Scribner. It's called Stalking Shakespeare. And uh, it's a strange book. I've never read anything like it. So we'll see how it turns out. How did you first get, like, what was the first nugget of what got you interested in that? I had a fantastic teacher, Leo Van Syke at the University of Arkansas. He was an old World War II fighter pilot. And uh, I just took his class and he would sit in the front row and and literally spit Shakespeare at us. And, you know, I think teachers, almost the best thing they can do is convey their enthusiasm. And he hooked me. And uh, I got hooked on Prince Hal, and I wrote this entire essay I was so proud of and handed it in to Dr. Van Syke. And I couldn't wait to get the essay back for the first time in my life, and he handed it back to me with an F. <laughs> and he came to me after class and put his arm around me and said, Mr. Durkee, you're going to have to learn grammar. And I went out that day and I bought a grammar book and I took it home and I learned grammar, you know, and it was that love of the, of what I was reading of, you know, Shakespeare that made me actually, you know, discipline myself as a writer for the first time. Uh-huh. And it just went from there. And then, so your access to these things was like through uh, websites of the, of the museums or, or you were going to visit these images in, in museums or? Yeah, both. But the advantage I felt I had in finding a 400-year-old portrait of Shakespeare is because just at this time, museums had started to offer online galleries. And these online galleries showed you photographs of portraits that had been kept in stock rooms for centuries, centuries. And so nobody had seen these. And suddenly that you can access them on the Internet. And so that was my angle that I felt like, ah, if there's a lost portrait of Shakespeare in one of those stock rooms somewhere, now I can see it. So I became obsessed with online galleries, and um, more than anything, that was my approach. And so uh, so this book is kind of, it, it's in, the, I guess, the editing phase, or... or are you, exactly. So, so you're, are you, you've moved on to, you've got other projects now you're working on as well, or...? No, because there's still work to do in this one, and I okay. just haven't made the decision on what I need to talk with my agent, who I just, tr- Dan Kirshen, who I just trust so much, and I always want to get his feedback, you know, something that he's interested in working me with. Uh, it was a strange process with The Last Taxi Driver. Um, I was working with Dan and his assistant, Andriana, and, uh, you know, and... It's a bit of a collaboration, and I kind of felt like we're sort of family. So we'll sit down and talk about where we're going to go next. But um, right now, I'm, I have no idea. Well, that's cool to have a team, though, to kind of yeah. be with you on the on the process. Excellent. Yeah. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app.
Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere.